serenity and happiness. Is that what you're looking for? I guess what we're all looking for. Calm heart, happy face. Um, serenity and happiness are the bookends of the prayer we have been studying by Arnold Niebuhr. God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed. And the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is. Not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. So we come to the last statement, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. When you think of search for serenity in places where they certainly would have found what this text describes in serenity, certainly we would think of the Garden of Eden. It's interesting, even there, uh, serenity slipped away. In a perfect world, again, it's interesting to think, in a perfect world, um, paradise lost. And let's look briefly to inspect the wreckage. How in the world could things go wrong in a place like that? It says, Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, pretty clear instructions. And then when later on in the text, uh, the serpent shows up and it says the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Um, something was lost in the translation. God said to Adam, don't eat fruit from the tree. Then when Eve passed on to the serpent, what instruction she had been given, she had another instruction, not only that she wasn't supposed to eat fruit from the tree, but that she wasn't supposed to touch it. What happened? How did there come to be something added to the instructions. I think it makes sense that, anyways, God told Adam he was the one who was entrusted with the message. Then Eve was created, and his response, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It was somebody that, he, that Adam identified with very closely. You remember what happened. There, there was all these animals, and there was no partner for him. So then Eve was created. Now here's a partner for me. And then he was considering... Um, we're not supposed to eat 
fruit from the tree. Mm, I really don't want her to leave. So I'm going to put a law around the central law. Eve, don't even touch the tree. Uh, interesting that apparently Adam felt uncomfortable. He thought of the fact that Eve would perhaps violate a boundary and be taken. And you know what ended up happening to Adam? His serenity left. He got afraid that God would take Eve. So what he did, he increased the message. Eve, don't even touch the tree. It's interesting. Eve's security followed quickly. Insecurity is infectious. Adam's concern became Eve's concern. And what was happening, they both felt like they need to protect themselves from God. Um, then the serpent says, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We know what happened. Um, Eve stole first, Adam stole second, and God threw them both out. It's the first baseball game. That's what ended up happening. Okay. Um, cursory examination would blame the woman. Mm. Mm. It's not really appropriate, is it, when you think of the entire situation? Deeper inspection reveals that before sin, before sin entered and happiness exit, in the Garden of Eden, serenity had already been leaking away in Adam. He didn't like the notion that Eve, with whom he identified, might be taken from him. His serenity leaked, and then it was passed on to her, and her serenity leaked as well. Even before human sin, I think I want to be interested, this is interesting when you think of it, even before human sin poisoned the mind, even before she took from the fruit, doubt about God's character had taken root. Can we agree on that? At some level, doubt about his character. First in Adam, then in Eve. The thought of Eve's demise distressed Adam, and he altered the message in order to reduce the distress. So, in the Garden of Eden, the exit of happiness was preceded by the entrance of sin. But the entrance of sin was preceded by the exit of serenity. And the exit of serenity was triggered by the entrance of doubts about God's character. Okay, now, I think you'd agree with us, agree with me, that we live east of Eden. We don't live in a perfect environment. We live in a place where human sin has touched the human soul. And so, um, serenity is even tougher to find and even tougher to keep. As we look over history east of Eden, the history of our civilization, we look for civilizations, peoples that, that probably had a decent chance at experiencing a prosperous, serene, peaceful existence. Powerful kingdoms, but virtuous kingdoms. If we were looking for a kingdom like that, Israel in 1000 BC would be tough to match. David had conquered all the things that needed to be conquered and passed over the kingdom to Solomon. Solomon was a person of great wisdom and intellect. And apparently the, the civilization that he created was jaw-dropping. 
Queen of Sheba came just to be able to sit and look at the wisdom that was reflected in the way they worshipped, in the way they governed, in the way they lived, in everything. People would just come just to see this civilization that he created. Um, strange that, well, actually, fortuitous that we have a book in the Bible that is Solomon's personal journal, the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's what we find in his writings. And he's not, it sounds boastful, but he's just factual. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. This was true. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon's search for happiness included relational as well as vocational pursuits. He had all the relational pleasures that you could want. But he didn't just throw his life away into those type of pursuits. He also attacked government and building as equal. He, he worked hard and played hard. And it turned out to be a chasing after the wind. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It, the, the creation of a really good civilization didn't allow him to remain serene and peaceful and happy. Serenity and happiness in the Garden of Eden, in Israel in 1000 BC, I think you'd agree with me. We don't live, no, we live in a good civilization, but a civilization where serenity is lacking. Do we agree with that? Um, why is that so? What's the problem? Here's what Solomon observed. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. What Solomon is describing is that there is a universal global burden that God has laid on you, 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 them, everybody on the planet. Let's find out what is this burden? What is this thing that we have been saddled with? Here's what it says. Um, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There is a burden that God has laid on men. What it is that he's made everything beautiful in its time. There's beautiful things, wonderful things in this world, relationships, and there's meaningful work, and there's creation. There's wonderful things. And those things are beautiful in their time. But the time passes. 
and the beautiful thing doesn't remain beautiful forever. Relationships die. Things change. People change. We experience the beauty of something, and there's something within us that God sets eternity in the hearts of men. There's something, there's a biological clock within us that is set for eternity, that that beautiful things don't pass away. They shouldn't. And so when we stand by a grave or we lament a relationship that was nice and past, or when things were beautiful and they're not beautiful anymore, because we live in a temporal world, there's something wrong because there is an eternal clock in us and we are eternal spirits within temporal mortal bodies in a temporal mortal world and when beautiful things aren't beautiful anymore and when people die something inside of us goes I don't understand this people shouldn't just die things shouldn't just go away there's something and we we might not be conscious of it but there's a resistance inside that's the burden God has laid on us that he makes everything beautiful in its time and the time passes but he puts eternity in our heart and the final piece of the puzzle we can't understand what God is doing from beginning to end if we can only know what's the question why 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 did that change? Why did he go away? Why did she start doing that? Why did they make that decision? Why did he end up being in charge? Why? 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 We can't understand what God has done from beginning to end. That's the burden God has laid on us. God knows that it's a burden. He understands that there is something in us that cannot tolerate this decay, this death. Well... How would God know that? He came to the planet. Remember what happened when Jesus was confronted by Lazarus' death? He, everybody was grieving, and he knew what he was going to do, but it's very interesting. It says Jesus was grieved, and there's a word that describes the action of a bull when it's about to charge. Once you think of a a bull, an animal, it's just pawing the ground and it's ready to confront. That's the word that describes Jesus' reaction to Lazarus's death. You know what Jesus was doing? He was touching the thing about, I'm tired of death. He understands that we are eternal spirits that were meant to be in immortal bodies. And when Jesus charged and raised Lazarus from the dead, you know what he was doing? He was confronting, well, he was reacting to the burden that he felt because all humans feel it. Jesus was God and man. Eternity set in his heart. People shouldn't just pass away. And so when he raised Lazarus, there was some, there was an edge to it. It wasn't just hapless grief. It was, no, I'm going to charge the grave and I'm going to undo the thing. And that's where Jesus came to do, to create an opportunity for immortal spirits to move out of mortal bodies into immortal bodies so that they can live forever. 
so that the sense within us of eternity, you know what? Through faith in Christ, we're going to join those who are past and are with him. 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now, that sense of eternity and the sense of why does everything go away? I'm going to ask you in 30, 40, 50, 60 years, remember, remember the world we used to live in? How things went away? How things died? How things changed? How grief was raised? Remember, remember when we experienced that? You have any sense of that now? What you're going to say is no. Joy is going to be the fountain in heaven. Supremely happy in the next. Reasonable happiness is the only thing available to us in this world. You know why? Because things die and change. That's what Solomon pointed out. Pretty insightful. Solomon was a smart guy. Understood human existence. Um, the Bible is clear about the pursuit of pleasure on this side of eternity. Tricky. It says, uh, what causes, we see, we look at this verse commonly, like what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? Literally, pleasures. That's what it means. Pleasures. Desires is the word for pleasure. Don't they come from your pleasures? The battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Our pleasures are at war within us. So what pleases you? That pleases you. But you know what else? So does that. And if if you go to be pleased by that, you're displeased over here because you also want to. And so our pleasures are at war within us. And would you agree with me? If you are living for pleasure, all of us want pleasure, but if that's your ultimate objective, that's what I'm going to pursue. If you live for pleasure and your pleasures are at war, what will that mean? If you're living for pleasure and your pleasures are at war, you will be at war with yourself. That's what the problem is. We don't want one thing. We want two things, like the scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. Well, that way is good, but so is that way. And that's what we're like. That's why to live for pleasure is to live at war, because we don't want one thing. We want different things, and we live in a world where things don't last. Um, goes on and says, or do you think, Scripture says without reason, James goes on, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God approaches the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, it's not possible to be supremely happy in this world. You know what James points out? When we don't get what we want because our pleasures point in different direction, you know what we do? Because of the spirit that has been placed within us? What do we do? We hold somebody accountable. We blame somebody. And it's not, it's instinctive. It's, it's, it's hardwired in us. We're going to blame somebody. Now, the fact is, it's really no one's fault. We are mortal being, immortal beings in mortal bodies. But we are going to blame somebody. And we're going to blame ourselves. Of course, I don't have what I want. Look at me. Or we blame others. Of course, I don't have what I want. Look who I live with. Or we blame him. But we blame Someone, we have a spirit inside, which 
assigns blame for frustrated desires. Our pleasures are at war, and we blame our frustrations on someone. Would you agree with me? It's really hard to be serene when we're blaming and frustrated. Would you agree? That's the default setting. Okay, what do we do with that? The ability to be supremely happy. Inability to be supremely happy doesn't feel good. Apparently, it serves a purpose. Here's what James says. He's writing to people who are not having their best life now. These are Jewish Christians who were forced out of their homeland, forced to relocate among Gentiles, which wasn't their land. And so they've had to leave their neighborhood and their livelihood behind. Now they are living substandard existences as Jewish Christians in a Gentile culture. And they're not accepted by Jews because they're Christians. And they're not accepted by Gentiles because they're Jews. They do not have a great life. And that's just the fact. And this is James's writing probably in 50, 55 AD. So they've been living like this for a couple of decades now. And here's what James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. He's writing to people, again, who are struggling, and... What he says, consider it all joy. It's really important to understand that thing because it's not saying be happy. Experience frustration and be happy. You know, you got, you got a demotion, smile about it. Don't smile about it. Here's, here's the sense of the word. The word consider is the word, from, it comes from the root word to be led, to be led somewhere. So here's the image, that you're in a place that is difficult and hard. But think about where this is going to lead you into the future. Consider what's going to happen at the end of this road. And thinking about what's going to happen at the end of this road, retrofit that understanding on what you're experiencing now. Now, this is terrible. I hate this. This is, but I know that it's going to lead me to a good place. And because I know that, I'm not going to giggle in the present, but neither will I chafe against, this is intolerable because he's accomplishing something. And that doesn't make me smile and be giddy, but it does take the edge off of some of the frustration, doesn't it? If you're in a difficult road and you have no idea of whether you're going to arrive at a good place, that is a really, really difficult place. If, however, you're on a difficult road and you know I'm going to land in a place, it's tolerable. And that's what James is indicating. That's what he's asking us to do. You're in the midst of hardship, difficulties, and temptations. You know what the temptation is? To do whatever it takes to remove the distress to decrease the agitation. How many of us like agitation? Come on, put your hand up. You love it. Agitation, distress. How many of you really like frustrated desires and unfulfilled purposes? Come on, raise your hand. None of us like it. 
It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. I have a question. It doesn't feel good. I agree. Does that mean it's bad? No. That's not, look what, it's, what James is saying here. It's dealing with distress, learning to live with agitation, learning to tolerate distress. I want you to listen to me. Non-negotiable with respect to spiritual maturity. You cannot develop spiritually without developing a capacity to remain in difficult circumstances that you would change if you could, but you can't. So you have to live with the president that just was there, or live with the president that's now, or live with the pandemic where people are both doing this and doing that. The agitation, the frustration, why do I have to live with this? Because it's non-negotiable relative to spiritual development. You cannot be mature spiritually and get what you want just not possible east of Eden and west of heaven. Just not possible. And that's what James is saying. It's a difficult truth, but it's the truth. And that's what James is indicating. James says the ability to persevere hardships. James is saying the ability to persevere, endure, not like, but to connect with God in order to endure hardships, this is the path to maturity. You know what Niebuhr says? It's also the path to serenity. The same thing. Um, He points a picture with respect to the path to serenity, living one day at a time. Can't live for tomorrow. Enjoying one moment at a time. Hear what he said? Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, not railing against my frustrated desires, determining that I should vent. Again, express your opinion. But you know what the deal is? We're not home yet. We're not home yet. We live in a world where things die and decay. Things don't go as we want. But that won't be true of the next life. That's what Jesus came to do. To sympathize with our ability, our need to deal with Jesus sympathizes with frustrated desires. Would you agree? Did Jesus feel like dying? No, let this come pass for me, but thy will be done. Jesus wanted two things. And you know what he learned to do? Express that to the Father. Rather than blame, he expressed. I'm going to occur to you your frustration. Rather than thinking that's sinful, you know what God sees it as? He wants you to talk to him about it. Jesus sympathizes with frustration. Talk to him. What do you ask him? Well, look what James said. James said, um, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. What about this? Rather than God 
Would you give me the wisdom to be able to live in a time where somebody's in political office that I don't agree with? Or retrofit that when the former administration was in place, prayer would be the same. Or relationally, the things that were there and are not. God, I'm frustrated because people who I loved are gone. Would you give me the wisdom to deal with that today? God, I have things in my life that I don't like. Would you give me the wisdom to deal with that today rather than push them down? You know what God wants you to do? He's saying, come to me. Talk to me. Express your anxieties to me just like my son did. What's that going to do? I'll give you the strength to deal with it today. And by the way, tomorrow let's have the same discussion. And the day after that, and the day after that. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time. Um, it's tough for us. Trusting that God will make all things right. Alexei to Tocqueville. He ended up, he was a guy who visited America and did a thing. He was from France and he, about democracy in America. He attempted to answer the question, why the Americans are so restless in the midst of their prosperity. He took this right before the Civil War. Look what he says. Um, this is what he wrote. In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened men placed in the happiest circumstances that the world affords. It seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung upon their brow. And I thought them serious and almost sad. Even in their pleasures, he went on to to say this, he who has his heart, ex he who has set his heart exclusively upon the pursuit of worldly welfare is always in a hurry because he has but a limited time at his disposal to reach, to grasp, and to enjoy it. The recollection of the shortness of life is a constant spur to him. Know what he's saying? If you've got to get it all now, then you've got to be in a hurry. If we have got to get it all now, we've got to be in a hurry. That's what he understood, that there's so much ability to choose things that feel good that we don't really listen to the biological clock. There is a clock inside of you that is set for eternity. It was funny, that clock literally in the back this morning, it was spinning backwards. But in our minds, clocks keep on ticking, don't they? Time passes. And we tend to think about, I've got to get it now. You know what? The Bible says about dying, to die is to fall asleep in Jesus and wake up with him in heaven. That's what dying is. Dying is moving out of a temporary shelter and into a permanent one. And you know what God would have us do? Clocks don't go backwards, they march ahead, but at some point... Time will be irrelevant in heaven, and serenity and happiness will be 
supreme. On that side of eternity. Reasonably happy on this side. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, we think about serenity and happiness as something we want, and it's elusive. In the Garden, in Israel, even in post-World War II America, we're living in the most sustained economic boon probably in the history of the world. We didn't have to sacrifice our factories in World War II so we could retool them, and it created a really good place to live time-saving devices, suburbs, and yet the same kind of restlessness because things still die. And so I ask that you give us wisdom so that we would understand what your purpose is. Well, we're not going to really understand those completely. We can understand that we don't understand, and we can come to you and understand that you know it's a burden you placed on us, and you would help us come to you to seek wisdom, Give us the wisdom to be able to live a day at a time, to do things that will last. Thanks for your purposes and your promises, for your sympathy and your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen.